You heard I had some uh, chest pains last week, and they put me in the hospital for some tests and uh, x-rayed me thoroughly and found absolutely nothing wrong. Um, I told someone this morning it reminded me of an old story about Dizzy Dean, the great St. Louis Cardinal pitcher of many, many years ago. He was uh, hit in the head by a pitched ball, and they put him in the hospital and x-rayed his skull. And the headlines the next day said, X-rays of Dean's head show nothing. (laughs) So they uh, X-rayed my heart and found nothing. I am like the Tin Woodsman, I suppose. But it's good to be back. Thanks so much for your prayers. Would you turn with me, please, to the 15th chapter of the book of Judges? And we want to continue the story of uh, this uh, great uh, brute, Samson, that Chris began for us last last week. Everyone's nominee for hunk of the year. Um, Interesting fellow, Samson. One of these worries, one of these worthies that we wonder about. He turns up in Hebrews' Hall of Fame as a great man of faith. And yet, as you read his story, uh, you wonder how you could possibly make that, uh, that list. You have the same ambiguity, I'm sure, that people are going to have when they decide whether or not they're going to vote Pete Rose into the Coopersville uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. Here's a man who was very much up and down in his spiritual life. There are those moments of glory when he walked with God, when he was filled and flooded with the presence of the Spirit of God and uh, fulfilled greatly his destiny. And then there were those other times when he was a resounding flop, when he acted in, uh, uh, out of self-interest and self-indulgence. We see him as a, a very much a self-contained, self-centered man doing what, what he pleases. And we wonder, how could a person like that make it into the Hall of Fame. Well, how could any of us make it into the Hall of Fame? Samson's story is our story. Samson's story is the story of the flesh warring against the spirit, as, as Paul puts it in the, in the book of Galatians. There are those times when we act in dependence upon the spirit of God and God uses us mightily. And then there are those times when we act out of self-interest and self-dependence and we fail miserably. And uh, that's why I say Samson's story is, is our story as well. Now, uh, last week, uh, Chris very ably told the story of, of Samson's uh, early years and the way he handled or mostly mishandled his puberty crisis. Uh, here was a young man who had a great destiny in life. That's actually the term that uh, Mr. Manoah uses when he... Uh, when he goes to the angel to get more information. What is this child's destiny, is the way he puts it. And the angel explains that his destiny was to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. God had a mighty purpose for this great man. Uh, But he kept uh, subverting that purpose over and over again. And his problem was women. Uh, There were, as we'll see, at least three times in his life and probably more when uh, not only was his breath taken away by some lovely Canaanite uh, uh, lady, but his manhood was taken away. 
And it's an interesting study in what happens to us when our sexuality wins, when we're dominated by our sexual urges and, uh, and longings. Uh, incredibly uh, relevant story for us today with all of the, the, the pressure to give way to the world's way of thinking about our sexuality. Now, uh, we pick up the story in chapter 15, uh, and the author tells us it was the time of the wheat harvest. Samson is on his way down to Timnah to um, see his girlfriend again. If you remember the story from last uh, week, Samson fell for a young Philistine woman. These uh, women we know from some of the representations of, of women in the Greek world were very beautiful women. The Philistines came from the Aegean Sea, from probably from the area uh, that we know today as Mycenae and the island of Crete. They were very sophisticated people, uh, highly cultured. Their men were very handsome. Their women were very beautiful. And it was one of these young ladies that Samson fell for. And uh, you know the story. He went down for the wedding, and during the week, long bachelor party that, that preceded the, the wedding, he gave them a riddle about the lion that he had slain that uh, the bees had used to uh, construct a honeycomb. And uh, uh, his, uh, his Philistine girlfriend wheedled the answer from him, which he passed on to her Philistine countrymen, and they used that against him. And he said, well, now if you hadn't been plowing with my heifer, as he puts it, uh, you would never have been able to unravel this, this riddle. And in an angry rage, he went off to Philistia, and he slew 30 of the uh, thirty Philistines in order to pay back the debt that he had incurred through this riddle, and then stomped off in a high rage back home. But uh, now it's June, and in spring, a young man's fancy uh, turns to what he's been thinking about all winter, and uh, he decided to visit his... Uh, Wife, the text tells us the Hebrew word for wife and woman are precisely the same. She was actually not his wife. We might refer to her uh, as his fiance if uh, he lived in our culture today. But she had been given to another man, one of his uh, 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 associates at the party. And uh, her father, when he got there, he discovered that she was now with another man. And her father said in verse 2, I really thought you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. And so this young lady was uh, faithful uh, to the end, but uh, Samson was actually a fullback. Um <laughs> Samson then said to them, this time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. And you know what happened. This is the day of the jackal. Samson went out and caught a number of uh, jackals or foxes. The uh, word in Hebrew is the same. Apparently, they didn't distinguish between those two kinds of animals. Tied their tails together with rawhide. Attached torches to their tails and turned them loose in the standing grain. It was the time of the wheat harvest. And the uh, jackals ran wild, igniting uh, fires everywhere, which then touched off their orchards, their vineyards, and ruined the Philistine economy. Then Samson, knowing that they would take refuge on him, uh, take revenge on him, went down, verse 8, and lived in the cleft of the rock at Etam. That is a, 
a cave that was reached through a crack in the rock where he could protect himself. The uh, Philistines then went up to Lehi in order to take him uh, captive. The people of Judah realized that they could not defend themselves against the Philistines. It would be better to give up Samson. So they went to Samson and Lehi and uh, convinced him to turn himself in. The story's uh, quite uh, familiar to us. They tied him with new rope, verse 13. They bound him fast and uh, turned him over to the Philistines, verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. So he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. I believe Chris mentioned last year that the Philistines held an iron monopoly and they had taken most of the weapons away from the Israelites. And uh, Samson had no other weapon other than this uh, large uh, bone of, uh, of a donkey. And it was this weapon that he used uh, to slaughter a thousand uh, Philistines. And then in a note of triumph, he composes this poem. Uh, it actually is poetry. It doesn't reproduce well into English, but it would be something like this. Uh, with the jawbone of an ass, I, was, I have killed them in mass. That's the idea. He struck down a thousand of the Philistines. And when he, it came about, he had finished speaking. He threw the jawbone from his hand, and he named that place Ramoth-Lehi. That is Jawbone Hill, in memory of that uh, of that event. You can see something of uh, of Samson's confidence in himself. He did it all by himself. But immediately after, he nearly died. As you know, he was became very very thirsty, and God miraculously provided for him. Verse eighteen: He became thirsty, and he called to the Lord, and said, "You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant." And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, so that water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned, and he revived. Therefore he named it in Hakore, which is in Lehi to this day. So he judged Israel twenty years in the days of the Philistines. This was a, one of those moments that I think all of us... Uh, uh, experience from time to time when we discover that we have no strength apart from God. Apparently, Samson took credit for this great victory over the Philistines, and then immediately after, just a a simple expedient of withdrawing from Samson, the opportunity to get a drink reminded Samson of how frail he really was and how needy he was, and then God supplied water in order to meet his need. And then it dawned on him. That life itself and the capacity to sustain life and everything that it takes to sustain life comes from God. We live and move and have our being in him. We cannot think a thought. We cannot move a muscle. We cannot do a thing apart from God. And that's something that's easily forgotten, particularly for those of us, I should say those of you, who are highly gifted. Some of you are perilously gifted. You're so good at what you do, it's very easy for you to take credit for it. Perhaps you have a very good mind or you have a very good body or 
uh, a winsome personality or you're very witty and clever. There's something about you that's very, very attractive and it's very easy to take the credit for that sort of thing and not realize that it all comes from God. Everything comes from God. We live and move and have our being in Him. A number of years ago, I was speaking to a, a football team down in uh, San Francisco, and they have a chapel before their games. And before I went in, the coach took me aside, and he said, Roper, I don't really care what you tell them, but please do not tell them that they can't do anything. Apparently, someone uh, just before had been speaking on John 15 and had pointed out that uh, we, apart from Christ, we cannot do anything and left the impression that, uh, that we really have no ability to do anything, and that's not the sort of thing that you, that's not the sort of attitude that you want a football team to have on the, the day before a game. And, uh, of course, he misunderstood what Christians believe. We believe that people can do a lot of things. Uh, in the right sense, I'm a humanist. I, I think people are wonderfully made, they have incredible abilities. But you see, there's a difference between being a secular humanist, thinking that it all comes out of us, that man is the measure of all things, and being a biblical theistic humanist, which is to say that we, all, we do all things through Christ who strengthens us. You see, Without him, we can do nothing. As David puts it, by God, I jumped over a wall. By my God, I ran through a troop. The very fact that you have athletic ability or that you have a good mind uh, is an indication that God is at work, you see, and we have to give credit where, where credit is due. I think, for example, intellectual arrogance is the silliest thing in the world. I've been in classrooms, and you have too, where, where people vaunt their intelligence and their knowledge, and I think, you know, it's, it's absurd because every thought that they have is given to them by God. They didn't construct their brain like a tinker toy uh, toy a doll. You know, they, 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 God put those that mind together. God causes those synapses to fire properly. and God put all the elements in our brains that, that, that make us what we are. We have to give credit where credit is due. Here's Samson with this incredible strength. Uh, and, and, and he had forgotten for a period of time it was God who gave him that strength. But he, but he came to himself, came to the end of himself, and he realized that he had to give credit where credit was due. Now, uh, goodness, we wish the story ended at this point. The passage goes on to say that he judged Israel 20 years in the days of of the Philistines. He had a very successful tenure as as a judge. He had so intimidated the Philistines that they uh, stayed out of Israel's hair. They stayed in their part of the the land. And uh, uh, Samson was a very effective judge. When he was in his mid-40s, he went through what we might describe as the 40-year itch, a midlife crisis. Apparently, Samson never married, at least as far as we, we know. He remained a bachelor, but he always had problems with women. And uh, he was in his early 20s when he began to judge. He judged for 20 years. Uh, sometimes, sometime around his mid-40s, he began to act a little bit crazy, like he'd been dropped on his head from a very great height. And uh, he went down to Gaza, chapter 16, verse 1. Actually, he strode into Gaza. You have this picture of this, uh, this great uh, uh, mammoth man striding uh, in his pride in, into the city. I don't know why he went down there. Perhaps it was a business trip. But uh, he ended up with a harlot. He saw a harlot there. 
and went into her. When it was told of the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the palace and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, let's wait till the morning light, then we'll kill him. He was in a, uh, a walled city. There was no way out except through uh, the city gates. There were several gates. There'd be the large gate in the front and then smaller gates located other places around, around the city. And if you remember Cecil B. DeMille's uh, production, uh, Robert Mitchum, under cover of darkness, went to the wall and lifted the uh, gate out of the socket and carried it uh, outside the city. Uh, Samson didn't go over the wall or under the wall. He went through it. These uh, gates, this is probably one of the smaller gates of the city, uh, but these were quite heavy. They were built out of very... Uh, uh, thick uh, pieces of wood, logs, actually, and then covered with metal and studded with nails on the outside. So this wall would weigh several, this uh, gate would weigh, weigh uh, several hundred pounds. And uh, Samson cleaned and jerked this thing and held it over his head and, and marched off toward Hebron and deposited it on the top of the hill. And the next morning when the Philistines uh, got up and started looking for Samson, they had a hole in their wall and their, and their gate was up on the uh, on a hill some distance away, and they realized that they'd been foiled again. I think this whole thing was a warning again to Samson. God was so good to keep presenting Samson with these warnings. Remember the lion? Chris uh, pointed out that that lion was God's way of warning Samson that danger was ahead. It reminded me of Peter's statement about uh, our enemy going about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he, he may devour. And on that case, uh, Samson uh, overcame the lion. And I, I think it was a lesson to Samson. That we can, in God's strength, overcome the sexual urges and impulses that, that drive us. I love John's uh, statement in First John when he says, I write into you little children because you know the Father. You know, that's, that's what little children do. They get to know the Father. He says, I write unto you, young men, because you're strong and you've overcome the wicked ones. You're learning how to subdue your sexual urges and the challenges to your uh, chastity. And, and you're, you're, you're strong like Samson. You know, God gives you the strength to deliver yourself at these times when you're assaulted. That was one intervention of God, the lion. Here's another little morning note. Watch out, Samson. Watch out. Or you're going to prostitute your manhood. You're going to lose it all. But uh, Samson, uh, his juices were, uh, were jangling, and he wasn't listening. And, and in verse 4, we're told that after this, it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Uh, Delilah's name is synonymous with seduction. Still is uh, today. And it's interesting, I was talking to someone uh, last week, and I discovered that that in Ar- uh, Delilah's name is not—it's uh, not Semitic. It doesn't come out of the the uh, Middle Eastern world. It's a Greek name, actually. But her name shows up in Arabic, and it's the Arabic word for a uh, flirt. So that uh, even in that part of the world, Delilah is associated with this kind of activity. Actually, she was something of a prostitute because she was hired by the Philistines to subvert Solomon. She 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 didn't love Solomon. She she just was using Solomon in order to make money. The five lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him. The, the Philistines had Samson's number. They knew where he could be subverted. 
They came up to her and said to her, Entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overcome him, that we may bind him to afflict him. Then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. It's about, uh, in today's economy, about $25,000. But in that uh, period, it would be much more. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be, um, how you may be bound to afflict you. And again, you know the story, you've read the story, you've heard the story in Sunday school, uh, you've seen it portrayed on the screen. First, uh, Samson says to her, if you just bind me with, with wet rawhide, then I'm powerless. And uh, so she did. She took some fresh uh, rawhide and bound him hand and foot, and then she, he went to sleep, and, and then she shouted at him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he just snapped the rawhide like it was a piece of, piece of thread. Meantime, the Philistines were hiding in the back room. They weren't just about to take him on. And then in verse 10, the second uh, uh, option, bind me with new rope. Now, they should have known from the experience at Lehi that that wouldn't work. But she was willing to try it. So she bound him with new rope, and he snapped those, uh, those ropes as well. Uh, it says he snapped the ropes from his arms like a thread. And then in verse 13, uh, Delilah says, it's up to now you have deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my hair with the, with the web and fasten it with a pen, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Looms in those days were horizontal. They were fastened against a wall. And apparently she took, he wore his hair braided in eight, uh, eight braids. And she took his uh, hair and wove it into the warp threads in the loom and then drove it into place with a pin so that he couldn't pull it out. And, uh, and then again awakened him from his sleep and shouted to him, the Philistines are upon you. And he leaped to his feet and ripped the whole apparatus off the wall and, and uh, strode out the door with this thing hanging uh, from his hair. So he pulled out the loom with the web. A spectacular uh, result. And then, oh my, in verse 15, she says, you don't love me anymore. How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? And she pressed him daily with her words, and she urged him that, that his soul was annoyed to death. And uh, he, so he told her all that was in his heart. And he said to her, a razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God for my mother's womb. Remember, he was a, a kind of lifelong ascetic. He didn't touch any of the products of the grape. was supposed to. He did. Wasn't supposed to come in contact with dead bodies. Wasn't supposed to, but he did. But he had let his hair grow long. But uh, now he's, he's willing to give that up. And he says, if I am shaved, then my strength will leave me. It will depart, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines. They, they had left and lost interest, but they came back. She said, Come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She, she sold him out. And she made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and, and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Then she began to afflict him, uh, tickle him, I suppose, and his strength left him, just as he had said back in verse 17. Uh, Ruth Bell Graham has a little poem that aptly describes what uh, happened. Samson 
man of great strength, pillowed his great head on the lap of sin, then rose at length, not knowing that his strength was gone. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as other times and shake myself free. And here's the bottom line. He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Now, I don't believe for a minute that uh, Samson's strength was in his hair. His hair simply symbolized his strength. If, if Samson's strength was uh, related to his length of hair, that'd be magic. And the Bible doesn't know anything of magic. His hair simply symbolized his relationship to God. And he now gave up the last vestige of that worship. He was willing to give it up. And his strength left him. And he was like any other man, vulnerable, pitiable. And despite his struggles, the Philistines overcame, overcame him. And uh, they gouged out his eyes. And they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains. The, uh, the Hebrew word suggests double chains, shackled hand and foot, incapacitated. And he was a grinder in the prison. Actually, Cecil B. DeMille's was about uh, 500 years ahead of his time when he had uh, Robert Mitchum pushing that donkey-drawn uh, grinder uh, uh, mill around. Uh, that particular apparatus wasn't invented until long after Solomon's time, or long after Samson's time. Uh, what they did to Samson is that they put him to what was then women's work. They gave him a mortal and a pestle, and they put him... Uh, down in the prison yard and he just ground corn for the prisoners and, and for the guards. They humiliated him in every way they possibly could. And uh, his downfall was total. However, however, the hair of his head began to grow literally as soon as it was shaved off. And along with his hair, the growth of his hair, his repentance began to grow. And shame at what he had, at what he had done, and uh, uh, a godly sorrow began to set in. Now, verse twenty-three. Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to rejoice, for they they said, "Our God has given Samson our enemy into our hands." When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the ravager of our country, who has slain so many of us. And it so happened that when they were in high spirits, during this uh, festival, these uh, uh, Philistine festivals, like all Canaanite festivals, were scenes of debauchery and excess. And uh, as, they, as they began to drink and uh, they were feeling pretty good, they said, let's uh, call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against it. Now the house was full of men and women and all the lords of the Philistines were there and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was uh, amusing them. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me just this time, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped 
the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and braced himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might, so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. Back in 1972, uh, Chris Rudell, our Assault and missions pastor was involved in an archaeological dig in uh, Israel at the site of uh, Tel Kassil, it's a Philistine uh, city. And in the course of their uh, uh, of their uh, excavations there, they uncovered a Philistine temple. It's the first, in fact, I believe it's the only uh, Philistine temple that they've uh, that they've discovered. And uh, uh, amazingly enough, the architecture substantiates uh, this story. I say amazingly enough from their standpoint. I don't think those of us that believe in the historicity of the Old Testament have any problem, but, but they were amazed. What they discovered is that these Philistine houses and their temples were supported by two pillars right in the center of the building, and the roof was arched up over the, over the pillars, and the pillars were about six feet apart. Wooden pillars, uh, sometimes... Uh, uh, stone pillars just standing on a pedestal. Once you see the architecture of the building, you understand what happened. Uh, Solomon, or Samson, was quite large. Apparently his arm spread was, uh, was longer than six feet, more than six feet. And this, he asked this little boy to station him between the pillars. The little boy, according to the rabbis, I don't know how they knew this, perhaps from some long-standing tradition that was passed on from generation to generation. The little boy was a Hebrew who had been assigned to take care of him, and he led Samson to the pillar. And according to the rabbis, Samson whispered a word or two to the young man, and he scampered out of there for his life. And he was the one who went back and told uh, Samson's countrymen what had happened. And Samson, placed between these two pillars, pushed them off the pedestals. They simply pushed them in both directions off the pedestals and uh, literally brought the house down. And as the uh, author of the text tells us, more Philistines were slain on this particular occasion than on any other. Let me read something that Edersheim wrote. His description of this event um, is very touching. It is a high day in Gaza. From all their cities have the princes of the Philistines come up. For all the country around, uh, from all the country around have the people gathered. The temple of the god Dagon is festively adorned and thronged. Below, below the lords of the Philistines and all the chief men of the people are feasting at the sacrificial meal. Above, along the roof, the gallery all around is crowded by 3,000 men and women who look down on the spectacle beneath. It is a feast of thanksgiving to Dagon, of triumph to Philistia, of triumph against Yahweh, captive Samson. The image of Dagon, which less than 20 years before had fallen and been broken before the ark of Yahweh, stands once more proudly defying the God of Israel. And now the mirth and revelry have reached their highest point. Samson is brought in and placed in the middle of the temple between the central pillars which uphold the massive roof and the building itself. A few words whispered to his faithful Hebrew servant, and Samson's arms encircled the massive pillars. And then an unuttered, agonizing cry of repentance, of faith from the Nazarite once more such, who will not only subordinate self to the nation and to his calling, but surrender life itself. Blind Samson is groping for a new light, and the brightness of another morning is already gilding his horizon, 
With all his might, he bows himself. The pillars reel and give way with one terrible crash, fall roof and gallery, temple and image of of Dagon. And in the ruins perish with Samson, the lords of the Philistines, and the flower of the people. Even the Philistines were impressed by his accomplishments when his brothers and his father's household, that is his tribe, came down and went over captive Samson. The image of Dagon, which less than 20 years before had fallen and been broken before the ark of Yahweh, stands once more proudly defying the God of Israel. And now the mirth and revelry have reached their highest point. Samson is brought in and placed in the middle of the temple between the central pillars which uphold the massive roof and the building itself. A few words whispered to his faithful Hebrew servant, and Samson's arms encircle the massive pillars. And then an unuttered, agonizing cry of repentance, of faith from the Nazarite once more such, who will not only subordinate self to the nation and to his calling, but surrender life itself. Blind Samson is groping for a new light, and the brightness of another morning is already gilding his horizon. With all his might, he bows himself. The pillars reel and give way with one terrible crash, fall roof and gallery, temple and image of of Dagon. And in the ruins perish with Samson, the lords of the Philistines, and the flower of the people. Even the Philistines were impressed by his accomplishments when his brothers and his father's household, that is his tribe, came down and and took his body and planning to take it off and bury it. They, they didn't interfere. And we're told that he was buried between Zorah and Eshtel in the tomb of Manoah, his father. Thus he had judged Israel 20 years. Uh, a number of years ago, I had an opportunity to visit the museum in Tel Kassil, and uh, the curator showed me a vase inside the museum that dates from about 150 to 200 years after this event. And the vase, is, it's a votary, a votive vase, has a can of what would have been an oil uh, lamp in the center. And uh, around the outside, there's a repeated motif, a man with his arms stretched out like this against a pillar. Interesting. So that uh, Samson's legend lived on, even in the, uh, the history of, of the Philistines. This is not an Israelite uh, uh, candelabra. This is a Philistine artifact. Now, what can we make of this story? Uh, probably all seen the movie, and you've had different uh, impressions of, of the movie, but there's one thing that stands out in this story to me, and it's simply this. If we want to fulfill our destiny, then we have to learn to control our sexuality. Nothing will subvert God's purposes through us any more profoundly than a misuse of this great gift of sexuality that God has given to us. Jesus put it very succinctly in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, the morally pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Nothing influences me more toward purity of heart and mind than that verse. Because what that passage tells me is that if I'm not dealing with sexual lust, if I'm not dealing with sexual activity, then I cannot see God. My vision of God is obscured. 
and the purpose for which God intended me is subverted. Samson is a wonderful example of that. God had a purpose for Samson. He sanctified him for that purpose, set him apart as a Nazarite in order to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And, of course, at the end of his life, there was a measure of that, of that, uh, the, of that deliverance. Actually, the Philistines really never did quite recover from this, uh, this tragedy. But it came about because of Samson's repentance. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the principle is simply this. If we want to realize and fulfill our destiny, we've got to know how to control our sexuality. There's no option. Let me show you three very interesting verses. Look at Proverbs 5. I love it when Dee leads our service because she always gives me enough time to preach. Unlike some, I know. (laughs) Now, um, the, the Proverbs are instructions to young men. But we can flip that the other way. They're also instructions to young women. Because the culture, uh, the instruction is given to the young men. But in our culture, let's talk about both genders. We're talking about men and women. So let's don't hang up on the, on the, on the gender differences here, okay? Now, what he's saying to this young man and to young women is watch out for that sweet-talking person. He says to the young man, watch out for the sweet-talking woman. He says to the young woman, watch out for the sweet-talking man. Their lips uh, drip honey. Uh, Their speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, they're bitter than wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Their feet go down to death. Their steps lay hold of Sheol. There are those um, women, those men that will take your breath away. And there are those men and women that will take your life away. They'll take your manhood away. They'll take the majesty of your being. They will destroy you. He goes on to spell out what that looks like. Verse 7. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep away from her. Keep away from him. It's a fundamental imperative. Just stay away. Some substances are so toxic you don't even sniff them. And uh, this is analogous. You just stay away from people that... They make it difficult for you to be pure. You don't put yourself in situations where you're likely to compromise yourself. Don't go near the door of her house. Don't go asking for trouble. And, and, and then follows the reason for his counsel. Listen to this. Lest you give your vigor to others. It's a Hebrew word for, for manhood, majesty. Lest you give your manhood, your womanhood, to someone else. There is a kind of you-can't-get-it-back quality about illicit sexual activity. It does something to your innocence, but more important, it does something to your manliness or your womanliness. It takes it away from you. So he says, stay away, stay away, lest you give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel and your old, uh, your old age is filled with regret. Less strangers, uh, that is, someone other than your wife. That's the, the way the Bible looks at it. All sexual expression finds its fulfillment within the bonds of the commitment of husband and wife. That's where it's good and, and beautiful and meaningful. But outside, every other woman, he says, is, is like a stranger to you. And, and what will happen is that strangers will be satisfied with your strength and 
Your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien and and you groan in your latter end when your flesh and, and your and your body are consumed. See, it used to be gonorrhea and syphilis and, and herpes simplex. Now, it, uh, simplex. Now it's AIDS that consumes your body. And you say, "How I hated instruction, and my heart's burned reproof, and I, I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers, and I'm ruined." He says. See that that's the point. Uh, illicit sexual activity, adultery fornication and homosexuality and pornography ruins you, destroys you. You can't see God. Your vision is obscured. You can't fulfill God's purposes for you. Now, if you're gay, we love you here. We invite you to come. We want you to to be here so we can minister to you, but we want you to understand that that gayness is not good. Gay is, is homosexuality is sin. And adultery is sin. And fornication is sin. And pornography is sin. And the reason it's sin is not because God just made up a list of ten sinful things, you know, just to cramp our style, but because He knows what, what will bleed us of, of life and, and vigor and manliness and virtue and all the, the strength that, that, we, that we long for. I'll show you two other verses quickly. We have to go. First Thessalonians 4. Paul puts it very succinctly. This is the will of God. This is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God as it has to do with God's intended purpose for you. That's what sanctification is. God's setting us apart for a particular purpose. This has to do with your destiny. Samson's destiny was to deliver Israel. You have a destiny as as well. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That you stay away from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. One other verse, First Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says some wonderful things in this chapter. He says basically God loves your body. <laughs> I can be lumpy and... and uh, Ugly and a lot of things wrong with it, but God loves it just like it is. He wants to fill it, flood it, put it to his intended purpose. Uh, Christians ought to have a very healthy concept of their body. Nothing wrong with your body. It's good. Uh, God loves it. And what he says is that God is for our body and our bodies are for the Lord. In other words, our bodies were given to us not for self-indulgence, but, but they're intended to be vessels filled and flooded with the, with the beauty of Christ. And the means by which God displays his character to the world. That's our destiny. See? It's not to get all you can out of life and not to live self-indulgently and not to live for yourself and amass a fortune or, or whatever. You know, it's the reason God gave us our bodies is that there are vehicles through which God can, can display his glory throughout the world. That's why God is for your body. It's why he loves it, just like it is. That's why he just wants you to present it uh, to him. But uh, the, the punchline here is um, in verse 18, flee immorality, he says. Same counsel that's given in Proverbs 5. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man 
or woman sins against his own body. Isn't that interesting? The only sin against our body is sexual immorality. I would think it'd be gluttony, but he, you know, he doesn't say that. He says that, that sexual sins are uniquely sins against your body. In what sense? Because they keep you from fulfilling, from fulfilling your purpose, your destiny. They subvert that purpose that God has for you. Now, um, how much time do we have? That thing is wrong, I think. I've got two minutes. Some of you are sitting out there and saying, it's too late for me, it's all over. It's not. It's not. Paul has a wonderful word to the people in Corinth when he says to them, I've presented you to Christ as chaste virgins. If you know anything about the city of Corinth, you know what a wretched place it was. It's sex-saturated city. Uh, and yet, when these people came to Christ, Paul said, you're virgins, chaste virgins. You start all over again. You start over right now, you see. Now, the, the question, I don't have time to develop this fully this morning. I mean, I've done a lot of thinking about this, and someday I want to rate some of this up. And uh, a lot of it's just half-baked right now. But I've got some ideas. You know, let, me, let me tell you what I think is going on. I think there's a very close connection between sexuality and spirituality. There are two mysteries, according to the New Testament, two great mysteries. One is the nature of our spirituality. What is it that makes you unique, sets you apart from animals? It's the fact that you can know God. See, that's something that uh, social scientists, psychologists, others can't, can't determine. That has to be known by revelation. That's why it's called a mystery. You were made for God, and you can only find yourself in God. You can only be satisfied in God. You were made... You were born for the love of God. And if you don't find that love, then it would be better for you not to have been born, frankly. That's what we're for. And that's where we find ourselves, you see. Um, and our sexuality is also said to be a great mystery. That's why uh, scientists, with all of their investigation of the body and human sexuality, are always wide of the mark. Even serious clinical studies miss the mark because they do not understand our sexuality. Now, just to, let me try to boil down a whole lot of thinking in just a word or two. I think the two are intertwined, frankly. I don't think cleanliness is next to godliness. I think our sexuality is next to godliness. I think that our sexuality is simply a picture of that intense longing that we have for relationship. That's what sets us apart from animals. Uh, animals only engage in sex during the time of estrus. They're, they're, you know, their whole thing is reproduction. With human beings, the, the end product is not reproduction. It's, it's love. It's a relationship. It's intimacy. And I think that sexual intercourse is a picture of the intimacy that we are seeking with God. The urge to merge, if I can put it that way, is only fulfilled in, in God. That's why even marital uh, sex doesn't ultimately satisfy. Oh, it's good, it's good, and it is satisfying. But it doesn't ultimately satisfy us because we're made for God. And it's only when we are in Him and He is in us that we are satisfied and fulfilled. 
which me leads me to believe this, and I just want to leave this thought with you. I do not think that the answer to the suppression of our sexual urges is uh, merely suppression. You know, the drug campaign, just say no. It doesn't work with drugs, doesn't work with sex. It is good to make up, make up your mind, you know, in the cold light of day, not in the backseat of some car or in an apartment house with somebody. You make up your mind long before that, you're, by God's grace, you're going to be pure. But that act in itself does not guarantee purity. Um, I also don't think that threats of uh, judgment necessarily stop us. It is true that uh, if we give way to our sexual desires and we begin to express them in illegitimate ways, there is an eroding away of our manhood and womanhood, and that is what Paul calls the judgment of God. We become more and more empty and less and less satisfied and fulfilled. And, and that, is, for me, is, uh, is an incentive because I don't want to go that way. But uh, in and of itself, that I don't think is the ultimate answer. You know what I think the answer is? I think our sexual desires are, are satisfied by worship. It's in devoting ourselves to Christ, putting our roots down into him, letting him satisfy our longings, fulfill us and satisfy us in every way, that we're able to subject these powerful urges that we have. That's why I often say that a failure in the sexual realm is not a blowout. It is almost always a slow leak. It is not that you simply get caught off stride and subverted in that way. It's that you have been steadily leaving your first love, moving away from a devotion and an attraction and a focusing on Christ. I say that because it is so important that we keep ourselves pure. And this world is just inveighing against everything that God wants for us. Now, I read about that NC-17 rating, and you know, it just angers me. Because the issue is not First Amendment. It has nothing to do with freedom of expression. They want to make money off of us. That's all it is. And they know if they can titillate us enough, they will get us to come in and see you know, see their, hear their flops resound. You know, most of the movies that they're injecting sex into them simply to get you into their theater so they can make money off you. And we need to face the fact that that's true. But what they don't realize, what they don't realize is that actually Satan is the one who's behind the scenes, who is using their greed for money in order to subvert our humanity. Just stop and think about it for a minute. If you want to destroy the human race, what better way than to get them to subvert their humanity through pornography, adultery, fornication, and other forms of illicit sex. They have played right into Satan's hands. Just like Judas. Judas thought that he was just greedy. He was after money. But he was Satan's tool to destroy the Son of God, or to try to. And that's exactly what's going on. That's what Paul calls the mystery of lawlessness. Why do they do it? Well, because there's a powerful enemy of the human race behind the scene who's out to destroy you. So don't buy the lie. Rather, put your roots down into God and love him with all your heart. You will be assaulted. You will be attacked. You will be tempted. Uh, the, the attacks will be, be very strong and virulent. But by God's grace, you can be pure.
Let's pray.